welcome to Series 5 of Behind Closed Doors podcast series. I am Donnie Walford, the Founder and Managing Director of Behind Closed Doors. In today's episode, we are speaking with Dr. Samantha Pillay. Samantha is a surgeon, entrepreneur, two-time Amazon number one best-selling author, educator and speaker. She was also a finalist nominee for the South Australian of the year in 2022. From preschool to old age, Samantha Pillay helps people live their dreams, overcome barriers, reach their goals, and become the best version of themselves. Samantha is a motivational speaker showing audiences why health prevention cannot be put off until tomorrow and how to create long life healthy So, Samantha Pillay, we are so privileged to have you join us on our podcast today. We would love to know more about your story, having started school in a wheelchair due to a congenital hip dysplasia, to now trailblazing the medical industry by being South Australia's first female urological surgeon. So, tell us about your career and the barriers you needed to break to get where you are today. Hi, Donnie. I'm so excited to be here with you. I've been <laughs> so looking forward to having a little chat. I, obviously, the physical barriers I had as a child were the biggest thing in my life. I started school in a wheelchair. I had surgery. I sort of had to learn to work with crutches and calipers and then walk unaided. But it did restrict me a lot from the point of view of being able to participate in sport or camps or lots of activities. And I really struggled even going upstairs with books, carrying books and various things like that. It did mean that I was very academic because I could sit <laughs> at a desk and that's basically what I've probably, Steve still today, spent most of my life when I'm not actually at work standing up doing, which sort of makes me productive in my rest time. I finished school when I was 16 and I wanted to do medicine to do surgery and everyone was like, oh, the fact you're doing medicine's great, surgery, oh, why you know it's that's the one thing you shouldn't do because you're going to have to stand to operate on patients but I did that was like red rag to a bull for a teenager being told don't do surgery it was like yeah now I want to do it even more so I did choose an area of surgery where I was able to sit down for most of my operating that wasn't the only reason I chose that but it was definitely one of the factors there were gender barriers as well, obviously, so physical barriers and gender barriers. And again, when I was a medical student, I recall like the guys, if they said they wanted to become a surgeon, oh my God, the oohs and the ahs that they got was amazing. And yet as a girl, it was meant to be the worst thing you could choose for family friendly. So I got a different response. People would say, oh, really? Why do you want to do that? Or don't you want to have kids? And that's not what the guys got. So in actual fact, I used to qualify my answer because like when you're at school, everyone says, what do you want to do when you finish? When you're in surgery, it's the same thing. And I used to say to people, I want to be a surgeon. I don't want to have kids. You know, I was barely a child myself and it definitely wasn't something on my radar then. So it was very different being the first female in urology in South Australia. And there were other female surgeons, but very few. By the time I finished my training, less than 4% of surgeons were female in Australia. What's that figure now? It's under 14%. If you include New Zealand, it pushes it up a little bit to 14%, so it's 13%. So that is really slow. That's 20 years. That's a long time, isn't it, to just get to over 13%. Yes, that's right, 13 yeah. How many of those surgeons are in your specialist field? 
Oh, I'm not sure I actually have the exact figure on that, but there's now three females doing urology, adult urology in South Australia. So when you were going through your training, did you have encouragement from other males who you were going through medical school with? Yes, I think that people are sort of supportive. They're not sort of discouraging, but there are, you know, definitely barriers as far as networking. Being the only girl, Guys just don't talk the same around you. So I really felt like I missed out on a lot of that networking, especially the conversations that happen on the golf course, you know. So any professional career, so much of it happens outside of the formal teaching program about how to run a business or introductions, where to get information. And I know you're very big on female networking. You can imagine if there was no one. And I think a lot of, especially going back 20 years ago, and you would have found the same, professional men didn't necessarily know how to relate to a woman of power a woman of an equal standing to them or in a more powerful position. And the conversations were sometimes a little bit more dilute around me than they may have had with other blokes, Mm, not intentionally. No, 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 of course. So now roll on to 2022, any difference? Well, I'm not in training anymore and people don't ask if I'm the surgeon because that role misidentification is one thing. So Obviously, I'm in private practice. People get referred to me, so they know they're coming to see the surgeon when they come. Role misidentification was huge in those early years. I think still there is, I'm very involved in business and entrepreneurship. And believe it or not, there's probably obviously a lot more women in that area. But again, that's still a difficult area for networking and business mentoring for me, partly because I'm actually in a unique position as a surgeon running a medical practice that I'm not actually directly in the business community either. I'm one of these sort of misfits. (laughs) (laughs) So just taking you back to when you were training in urology, you saw a need for a greater focus on incontinence treatments for women and a need for specialised care. So this gender barrier you talked about then led you to become the first urologist in Australia to exclusively specialise in female and functional urology. So what inspired your vision to focus on women through your work? So it was really interesting. When you're in medical school, I love still asking students the same question. You might get one lecture on incontinence. When it affects one in three women who've had a child, Once you're over the age of 50, it's more than 50% of women. It's more common than diabetes or hypertension. And I can tell you they get more than a lecture on that. So (laughs) it's so underdone. And then you go to GP training or nursing training or physio training, you name it. There's two things. I think that it hasn't helped that it's women's health. It hasn't helped that there's a stigma and it's a taboo subject. But it's not just in society, it's even in the medical training. And then you go to urology and you train to be a surgeon and it's all about stones and prostates and cancers and it still doesn't get its just desserts. So I really felt that there was a big need for this area and I did a very brave thing. I actually went out from the get-go and subspecialised and said, this is all I do, incontinence and functional urology. I don't do any of the other stuff, prostates, cancers, etc. And I think I was the first surgeon in Australia to actually do that. Subspecialisation had been prolific in North America, but it was very rare. I think part of the reason I did that was I felt that as a woman and maybe combining with a family, just keeping abreast of one area. And when I do something, I love to do it well. I also thought maybe I'd be able to work part-time. We didn't have the demographic data 
of how common incontinence was at that stage. So I didn't realize I was signing up for a life of full-time busy practice by doing this. I thought, oh, surely if I only just do this little area, I'll never have worked yes. too hard. So has it changed now? So there is more awareness as specialized nurses in incontinence, specialized physios. I think we've got the two first specialized GPs at our practice in incontinence. I have done a lot of medical education for GPs, nurses and physios over the years to try and get a level of general knowledge out there so that the patients that then come and see me as a surgeon, you know, not everyone needs to see me from the get-go. They could have a lot of stuff dealt with and only see me if that doesn't work. So I've been involved in that sort of education. I actually got one of my passion projects completed last year. I think COVID helped where I've been running workshops for 20 years with the GPs and you start to go, you know, the GPs are new, but the person delivering the workshop is the same old person. I actually put it online and I like being creative. So it filled my creative space. So I actually made a video course. There's these thinkific like programs and stuff. And I created a video course online and did 42 video tutorials they're all short you know because everyone's got goldfish brains (laughs) two minute videos and that was great fun for an online course so this is not for the general public this is for healthcare providers gps and nurses and physios but just to be able to put that out there and create that level of educational i'd always dreamt of doing that so that was exciting and fun. And COVID obviously made people more susceptible to be able to watching things on video because they couldn't couldn't go to lectures and, and whatever. So it is a great source, isn't it, to, you know, just one of you but doing it to many. Yeah, and it fitted with everything. I had always thought to myself, God, I should put this online. And part of it was you'll have the workshops, but they don't help the rural GPs. And they do the workshops for six o'clock. And as a single mum, I know that's the worst time. You'd actually rather do it in your own time at nine o'clock when the kids are in bed. So I'd always thought I want this online to reach other people I needed a pandemic to come along and cancel all the (laughs) face-to-face workshops for me to go you know well you've had that good idea for 10 years now's the time to do something about it nothing like a good pandemic to get you into action so in specializing in incontinence treatments for women you also ignited your entrepreneurial spirit by founding continence matters so this aims to bring care and treatment to those with disabling bladder conditions so tell us about your entrepreneurial journey and your greatest triumphs and challenges. I have loved entrepreneurship. When I was first starting out, I had some helpful advice, things like, well, you're a woman, so you shouldn't go into private practice, which is the lucrative, you know, maternity leave from a public hospital and you won't be able to be on call for your patients and stuff like that. That helped channel me into entrepreneurship, solopreneurship, mumpreneurship, female founder, you name it. And that has been the most exciting journey. I like excitement. I wouldn't have become a surgeon if I didn't. I like the stress and putting myself out there and taking risks. So that's all great for entrepreneurship. And you spend years and years of training to become a surgeon. Just another pound of sweat equity thrown in and you're an entrepreneur in the making. So I have loved that journey. And in actual fact, with my second children's book, When I'm an Entrepreneur, what I do, it's a very, very simple picture book, but I spend good six months researching and I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years but researching what it takes what an essence of a true entrepreneur is to put it into a simple children's book and I discovered a whole lot of stuff and one of my favorite quotes is from Josephine Cochran and I'll tell you who she is if you don't know who she was but she sort of said if I knew all I knew today I never would have had the courage to start but then I would have missed out on a wonderful experience so many self-startups I now mentor some self-startups many in the tech industry and involved in sort of some business, giving business lectures. None of it is medical. The business side of that is is not in the medical industry. 
I just have really enjoyed that. And some of the articles I've written on my website talk about how you combine your work with parenting, why entrepreneurship is such a good career choice for women. In fact, even why surgery is the best career choice for a woman. So it's really allowed me to sort of combine all my different hats. And so Josephine Cochran, who was she? So with my research, and I was looking into famous female entrepreneurs, I found out about her, and I've written an article on my website about her. She is just amazing. So she was in the 1800s in America, and she was a widow when women struggled to cross the road without a man, and they couldn't vote. And she was annoyed with washing her dishes because she wouldn't let the servants because they chipped the fine china. So she wanted a dishwasher. She couldn't find any male engineers to work with her but eventually sort of found at the bottom of the barrel to work in her woodshed and designed and built the first dishwasher, which she patented at the same time as the car. Now, how many inventions are there still around over 150 years later that widely used in every home? I mean, she is one of the leading entrepreneurs of the world. So I just love her story and it just shows how our history books don't recognise all the great women in history. And when I did... I put all these little Easter eggs and hidden things in the images in my children's picture book. One of the images when I'm an entrepreneur, the girl has in a picture frame on her bedside table a picture of a dishwasher. <laughs> so, and you know, you, you're going to be looking at this kid's got a picture of a dishwasher, but I have this backstory that I write about on my website where people can go and dive deeper for the older kids or the adults and I'm using them as a little bit of a vehicle to make a statement and change the world. <laughs> so... Now that you have established a successful career, have you noticed any barriers in medical care that you feel compelled to focus on now? Oh, my God. (laughs) Is that a big question? No, there's a big yes. So, you know, I have spent 20 years focused on treating female incontinence and the problem is I feel you work so hard and yet the problem seems to be getting bigger when it comes to healthcare, not smaller. So, you know, after you put in a good part of your life's work, you feel like the tsunami is still getting bigger in front of you. And that relates to patients coming in with so many other health problems that it almost undermines the success of surgery and their risks are escalated because they've got so much chronic disease. And that's what I see increasing. And I've realized that what people can do to help their own health destiny is far greater than any power I have as a surgeon. You know, you start off as a surgeon thinking you can save the world, and then you go, oh my God, it's the patients who can save the world, not me. The World Health Organization has said 80% of heart, stroke, diabetes is preventable, 40% of cancer is preventable, and we are so busy that we're just killing ourselves because we don't have time to prioritize our health. So I really hope that COVID has helped reset that. I think a lot of people are thinking differently about health. Our greatest resource, one body, one life. And I want to try and help make a difference in that space because what I've done just isn't enough. And so (laughs) I want people to realize that you really have to invest now or you'll pay later. It's our quality of life. People are living longer. And if you want to be able to travel, if you want to be able to wear nice clothes, if you want to be able to socialize, if you want to be able to dress yourself and feed yourself and not be in a nursing home for the last 20 years of your life, you have to look after yourself. And so I've started doing some public speaking on disease prevention because I think I want to inspire people. There's so much information there, but people fail to act. And it's really about getting that aha moment. I think my own journey has partly been a piece of this. A lot of people, they'll suddenly go on a trip once they have a heart attack. But why wait till it's that late? I was born with something. So I was kind of born with that aha moment. I was born with, okay, there's something I can't fix. Can't ever change it. But 
that's made me more motivated to do what I can to look after the health that I've got, making sure I'm exercising so that I can work. You know, I really saw myself going in two directions. One was immobility and a disability pension or one just total commitment to my health. I've had to be able to keep my weight down when I couldn't like other people. You know, you don't take it for granted when you don't have it. And I'm the same weight as I was 30 years ago. And yet a lot of my classmates aren't who could do things I never could. You've really astounded me, Samantha, about one in two have chronic health disease. I mean, that's alarming. Yeah, and that's right. So I'm hoping that through education, as well as inspiration. I mean, I really believe in people because I see people do amazing things. It's just about having that aha moment where you prioritise it. So like one of the things is a third of adult Australians now have high blood pressure. Salt is a major factor in our diets. Most of us are consuming way too much salt. We eat as much salt as the Americans. It's restaurant meals, takeaway processed foods. So we have this Uber Eats generation. People have forgotten to cook or people say I don't cook. They're buying meals and there's no restrictions restriction on the salt there's no packaging when you get takeaway and that's fine if it's occasional but if you're doing it four or five meals whether it's breakfast lunch or dinner that you're eating out salt alone is a huge impact and research has shown that salt reduction strategies are 200 times more cost effective than hypertensive medication so that was part of the reason I wrote the first book which was the no recipe cookbook which was trying to inspire people who don't cook the kitchen phobes to just prepare basic meals because I could see and it's not just financial the health impact of people just being reliant on accessing food that is high in salt and calories fat saturated fats and you only have to look at the demographics of our population to see what's happening with people's health three quarters of the population almost are overweight or obese and there's statistics I mean I had an aha moment I had a normal BMI and I found out that your waist measurement is more important than your BMI and if your waist measurement as a woman is over 80 centimeters you've got an increased risk of heart attack stroke and early death get out the tape measure. I was like, oh my God, I lost a couple of kilos after that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just astounded because I was going to ask you, even when you said about exercising, even if it's walking, that it's people who are sedentary that are suffering from bad health, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We're also sedentary. I mean, I don't even drive to a meeting now to talk to you. The new recommendations are you should have 150 minutes of aerobic activity a week and two weight sessions. So I'm still struggling to get there, but at least I've got that knowledge helps me set targets, you know what I mean? And I can at least aim. I'm really time poor. I'm more likely to get five, 30 minutes in to get my 150 because rather than longer sessions. That's okay too. Yeah. And then trying to even have walking meetings with my manager at work. So we just walk, keep a pair of sneakers at work. About that knowledge and priority and really thinking about the future that you need to do. We're living longer. And if you think about that, what this burden of disease is and how the individual is empowered to actually change it, what would it do to our health spending, which is out of control? What about the workforce shortage? What about our whole productivity as a nation, let alone the individual's quality of life and happiness as their age? I'm hoping that I can change the health of our nation (laughs) single-handedly. You know what? Start recruiting people to help you talk about it then because you can do your videos and whatever, but I think the more people who talk about it and the more people in your camp, because you're right, this escalating health message, but the cost on the system is just going to get greater as we age as well. 
So I think it's a really important message to get out there. So maybe a band of behind closed doors women can help you. Fantastic. Please contact me. I think I'm going to jump on the bandwagon with you. I would love you on board. (laughs) Well, Well, we'll make that happen after this. But you've mentioned about your books. So there are only children's books that you've written so far, When I'm an Entrepreneur, When I'm a Surgeon. So the first one was actually the No Recipe Cookbook, the cookbook for people to save money, time and calories. It started for me because I was too busy and my biggest stress in my life was what's for dinner and I was hangry and had decision fatigue at the end of the day and couldn't even work out what I wanted from an app. I learned that if I threw away all the cookbooks that were sitting in my kitchen that I never used, I just would look at but never actually cook anything because by the time I'd chosen something, I was over it. That if I just learned to cook without a recipe, a rinse and repeat simple repertoire where I could change the ingredients and shop once every two weeks, I changed my life, halved my grocery bills, halved my food waste, lost weight by not eating out. Oh my God. And so that was the first book. And health is my one thing I'm passionate about, obviously. And the other is self-belief. Just like I say, I'm going to change the health of the nation. It's that self-belief and that dream. And that's what I think we really need in young girls. Society clips their wings. They think big, but they don't think big enough. When I'm teaching young girls, I say, take your dream, don't be afraid to dream, double it, and now double it again. Because we just put those brakes on. And I think a lot of women suddenly find, like me in their 50s, oh, why have I been doing that? Let me take the brakes off. And it's, wow, I didn't realize I could do that. (laughs) And you're an example, Donnie, as well. That self-belief is what it's about. So the books are written in the first person. So the first in the Inspirational Careers for Kids picture book series was When I'm a Surgeon. No guessing where I got that idea from. And the second was when I'm an entrepreneur. Now, the third book, When I'm an Astronaut, you can buy now on Amazon and all sort of online retailers. So these are very exciting. The children's self-belief as well as career stereotypes start to form as early as age three. And we then try and get girls to make career choices in their teenage years in high school and it's too late. We don't emphasize enough on that self-belief and career options in the young years and overemphasize it in the later years and wonder why we don't get the results we want. STEM careers are only 25% of them are held by women, yet that's higher paid, predicted to grow more than all the other careers. And unless we change the way women think about what's feminine in our society, then we're not going to be able to address the gender pay gap. It will only widen if there's less women in the higher paid careers. And it's about money and power in our society, in our homes, in our workplaces. And it just leads into other things, you know, domestic violence. How women see women, how men see women is crucial in our society. So that's the books, the other the other thing I'm trying to do, which is kind of exciting. And I'm hoping I'll make a difference there. And it's a lot of fun. I have spent six months researching astronaut training. I loved physics at school. This is as close to space as I'm ever <laughs> going to get. Andy Thomas has done a testimonial for the book. I've just, oh, yeah. wonderful. And so it's a fantastic opportunity for me to space travel from my desk. So your books are written for young girls all the way up to mature women? Yes, that's right. And men, you know, I am changing the way people think. So there's a lot of little hidden meanings in the books which people can read backstories through my website about 
Why are there two tortoises in that picture on space travel? Because they were the first mammals to actually enter space, travel around the moon and come back to Earth alive, which the Russians did in the 50s to prove that if you put something up there, it came back down alive. Because, you know, these were the first questions people had. And just little things like there's some pictures taken from the space station, knowing things like the handles on the outdoor of the space station are yellow, but the ones on the inside are blue. And so it will help add some entertainment and interest to grown-ups as well. Each book's got an activity book. Although the picture book starts very young, it does carry this sort of history and interest in one dad said that his young daughter, I think she was like 11, had learned it off by heart as her mantra, you know, because she wants to be the next Elon Musk. I think if you're trying to communicate a message, you can do it with pictures. And when you've got fun, delightful pictures, it's much more empowering than rabbiting on to adults about how you want to change the world. If you can do it with delightful children's picture books, I hope that it's going to resonate more. I loved word searches when I was a girl. And so the activity books are definitely for older kids than the picture book. I've got things like globalization and acquisitions in the entrepreneur, not the usual word searches. <laughs> oh, Samantha, it's been so good to talk to you today. And to all our listeners, whoever has been listening to this wonderful podcast, I mean it. Let's get on the bandwagon. Let's help Samantha in her quest to change health in Australia. Samantha, you're an inspiration. You're awesome. You are totally successful. We love you and thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, thank you, Donnie. It's been an absolute honour. I've been so looking forward to this. Thanks for listening to Women on the Move, the Behind Closed Doors podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. To find out more about Behind Closed Doors, visit www.behindcloseddoors.com where you can find the full range of membership options. Women on the Move was recorded on Ghana lands and is a narrative network audio production.